Hello, everyone. How are you doing? I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. And we have a really good show today. We have my friend on again, Spencer Feldman. And he's such a wealth of information. I wanted to have him come on again to talk about digestive issues and all the different reasons why we can have digestive issues. We just did um, a podcast not too long ago about the microbiome. So this is kind of like the microbiome part two. There's a lot of uh, questions I had, a lot of things that Spencer wanted to discuss that we just didn't get to. So a real treat for you again, if you have uh, digestive issues. And on this show, we're going to be talking a lot about SIBO, uh, what SIBO is, it's small intestinal bowel overgrowth and what causes it. We'll talk about uh, the tests to do for SIBO to find out if you have it. And he estimates about 60% of people have SIBO. Um, it's just a lot of people because there's a lot of different things working against your small intestine and back the wrong kind of bacteria, the wrong amounts of bacteria getting into that small intestine. We'll talk about if you need to do a FODMAPS diet, which is getting rid of all the foods that could cause fermentation, further irritate your small intestine. Uh, we'll talk about zonulin. What is that and how to lower it? Um, he talks about LPS and how those damage your guts and, and cause problems. Uh, we'll talk about how cancers are cloaked diseases, how things like Lyme are cloaked diseases and how they hide from the immune system and how to combat that. Uh, we'll talk about candida, you know, and how candida fits in the overall conversation here regarding your digestion. We'll also talk about fecal transplants. And so what those are like, why on earth would you want to put someone else's poop in your gut? And we'll talk about, uh, if people like when somebody needs that and also how to do a fecal transplant as well. And we'll also touch on diets, like extreme diets like the carnivore diet. And if those are healthy to do, or like when is the right time to do those. So lots of really good info on the show today. And I'm talking more and more about uh, emotional trauma. So, so many people today um, are dealing with, it's estimated that 95% of people have one or more, uh, what are called adverse childhood events or ACEs. And so in just my years and years of working with clients, working with patients and, and trying to help them. And, uh, you know, over the years, just found that just addressing things on the physical level, just finding, trying to find a physical solution is not always successful and certainly helps but many times, and like so many of you guys listening to the show ha are doing everything correctly. Like you're eating an amazing diet. You're taking amazing supplements. You really pinpointed what type of diet works for you. You're trying to sleep. You're reducing stress. You're exercising. You're getting sun. Like you're, you've got all the boxes checked, um, but many of you still don't feel well, or you just don't feel great. You know, so there, there's one thing to be at like homeostasis. It's another thing to wake up and just feel amazing mentally. And that's one thing that it's, for me, had always eluded me, even though I took really impeccable care uh, of myself physically. And so I've really been interested in, in psychology and emotional trauma really my whole life. And so I've developed what's called the emotional detox program. And uh, there's a masterclass where you can learn all about the, the statistics and information behind how 
emotional trauma causes our physical health issues and what kinds and how much it's really fascinating. It's astounding uh, how much of our physical health is reliant on past emotional traumas that we've experienced. And I talk about all that and more in my emotional detox program and how to actually pretty easily, uh, if you, if you, you know, there's a lot of very, very simple tools uh, I have in the program. Uh, you can actually pretty easily at home successfully release your emotional trauma. And we, I talk about in the course, the difference between uh, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, childhood development issues or you know, traumas you suffered at the hands of your caregivers. Um, and it's a 30 hour course. It's very, very thorough with all everything I say in it uh, backed by conventional medical research. So go check it out. There's a free masterclass you can watch at emo-detox.com. It's E-M-O dash D-E-T-O-X.com. Check it out. You won't regret it. So my guest today, Spencer Feldman, he's a multiple patent holding inventor with more than 20 years experience formulating and manufacturing detoxification products for doctors and their patients. So his trailblazing use of suppositories to deliver ingredients that would otherwise require intravenous therapy or IV therapy has changed the way many doctors do detoxification. So the owner and he's the owner and formulator of the Remedy Link brand of products. And he's now in his fifties and he lives with his partner completely off grid on a hundred acre farm where he spends his time tending his orchard and garden while continuing to design new products to help detoxify people in our ever more toxic world. You can learn more about Spencer and his amazing products that I highly recommend at remedylink.com. Spencer, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Wendy. Yeah, I always love having you come on. You're such a wealth of information. And we did a podcast before on the gut and uh, everything about gut bacteria and oligosaccharides and things like that. So there were still so much more to talk about and so much more left in this conversation uh, that I want, I want to have you come back on and talk about different types of gut infections and different kinds of uh, you know diets that are supposedly uh, beneficial for your gut. So let's get into it. Let's talk about like SIBO. So SIBO is one of the number one gut infections that people have. I think it goes largely undiagnosed and people mm-hmm. suffer from all kinds of digestive issues. So what exactly is SIBO? What are the symptoms of that? And why do so many people have it? Sure. So, you know, we have various parts of our digestive tract, you know, the mouth, this digestive enzymes and chewing, and then the stomach with acids to disinfect and break things down. Then there's a small intestine where most, most of the absorption is taking place. And then there's the large intestine where the fibers and oligosaccharides we can't digest are fermented to create good short chain fatty acids and things we can use. That's the way it's supposed to work, right? Uh, now, a lot of people are familiar with, you know, having a large intestine that gets out of whack where you have um, the wrong things growing in there. Uh, what people um, may not be aware of is that can happen in the small intestine too. And it's called SIBO, which is small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So the colon is not the only place that you can have uh, putrefaction and uh, fermentation. It happens in the small intestine. Now, the amount of bacteria in the small intestine is supposed to be on the order of 1000 times less than the large intestine. It's not supposed to be a lot of bacteria there. And it's also not to have, not supposed to have a lot of genetic diversity. So it's supposed to be a few bacteria in there, but not much. Um, but when you start to see large amounts of bacteria, like E. coli and Klebsiella, uh, you know, micrococcus and things like this, 
uh, and then you start getting people who are having bloating and other inflammatory issues, they could be dealing with SIBO. And if you do a lot of stool tests, you'll see that something like 70% of the population has some degree of SIBO that's actually bothering them. I, I would actually say that everyone like, you know, who's had antibiotics uh, and lives in a modern diet has got some degree of SIBO, um, whether or not it's symptomatic or causing problems is not another matter, but certainly um, a lot of people do. So SIBO is when you have the wrong type and the wrong amount of bacteria in the small intestine, and they're creating toxic short-chain fatty acids and gases. So uh, first, let's talk about the, the about the protections you get from SIBO. Uh, the you know the natural protection protections that you would have um, for SIBO, and then we could talk about what you can do protocol-wise. So one of the first things you're going to want to do is do a transit time. And I know I initially said blueberry powder in the last episode, but actually chlorophyll works a lot better. If you do a tablespoon of chlorophyll um, once with, your, with a meal, count how many hours it takes for, it to, for your stool to turn green. Uh, it should be around 18 and the longer, the more problematic because the longer it takes, the longer food spins in the small intestine, the more likely you are to have things fermenting there that shouldn't be there right? Food should be in the small intestine seven hours and move along. Uh, I wouldn't do a lot of chlorophyll because chlorophyll you buy in stores isn't actually chlorophyll. It's chlorophyllin. It's actually sodium copper chlorophyllin. And most people already have too much copper. So if you're copper sensitive, you know, you can do the chlorophyll, but maybe take a little EDTA to bind it afterwards. Okay. So let's talk about the natural protections for SIBO. Uh, the first protection you have uh, would be what's in the food itself. So primitive food, would have things like bitter elements, tannins, phenols, essential oils. Um, and all those things are um, anti-fermentive. They slow down or stop fermentation from happening. Now, what happened with the agricultural revolution is we learned how to breed, selectively breed our plants to make them sweeter. That's more sugar. That's more fermentation and less bitter. That's less medicinal. That means less anti-fermentation compounds. So our food ferments a lot more because there's more sugar for the fermentation and less of the elements that stop the fermentation. And so we end up with fermentation problems in the large and our small intestine. In terms of the essential oils, unless you have a spice um, garden uh, and you, you, know, you go and collect some oregano and then cook right up with it or put it right in your food, the essential oils are gone within a few hours. And so essential oils are virtually gone from our diet. So, you know, we have that zoibin product. It's got bitters and essential oils. If you want to try to re, because you can't really recreate a primitive diet even if you try, because, you know, the carrot of today is not the carrot of 5,000 years ago. Carrots today are very sweet and hardly bitter at all. That's true for all the plant-based foods we eat. They're, they've lost their medicinal anti-fermentive uh, qualities. So since we can't really do it with diet, you could consider it zoibin or adding some bitters and polyphenols and uh, essential oils and tannins to your diet. Uh, so that's the first protection. It's just actually what you put in. Uh, and the second protection would be the disinfecting aspect of the stomach acids. So that way, if you are taking bacteria in, which you always are, unless you can pressure cook your food, um, you, died, you, you can break down some of the bacteria. So less of it arrives in your small intestine. Another uh, protection you get is bile. So uh, bile is the... Uh, fluid secreted by the liver to help emulsify fats and kill parasites and stimulates digestion. But it also has a detergent effect. That same detergent effect that breaks down fats breaks down bacteria. So bile is the natural antibacterial for your gut. 
And if you don't have enough bile flow, I think uh, we've talked about this one before on your show, it's uh, glitamins. Uh, you could consider some way of uh, flushing the, the stones and sludge out of the liver and the gallbladder so the bile is moving properly. So the bile can actually be there to kill the bacteria that's small in the small intestine. Yeah. And so you just showed your product glitamins. Mm -hmm. And so that helps with your liver, correct? Your liver uh, so, flow. Um, one of the, the, yeah, the idea is to support the body. So a lot of people, as they get older, uh, the, especially if they're, you know, in around, on a lot, a lot, around a lot of chlorinated water, uh, and have certain, um, dietary things going on, they're going to end up with sludge and stones in their gallbladder. This is coagulated bile. And so not only is that very painful if you have to pass them, um, but it means the bile is not coming out necessarily, and it's not having that detergent and fat emulsifying effect and that antimicrobial effect on small intestine. So, you know, one of the keys to your digestion is getting your bile going and something, whether it's glitamins or something else that you do uh, to make sure that the bile is moving properly is one of the main things you have to do for your gut, specifically your small intestine. Another thing that bile does uh, actually is something, it triggers something called an FXR receptor, which are these little receptors at the end at the, uh, of your small intestine at the ileum. Now at the base of the small, small intestine, there's a valve called the ileocecal valve. And if that one, uh, and that's where the food goes from the small intestine, to large intestine, and it opens up, lets the food pass, and then it closes again. Now, some people have a jammed up, um, ileocecal valve. If somebody has like, um, scar tissue from an abdominal surgery, then the ileocecal valve can get pulled into out of shape really. And it can be slightly opened all the time. And what that means is food can reflux back from the large intestine and the large intestine has a lot of bacteria in it. So there's a natural protection, which is the ileocecal valve. And even with a healthy ileocecal valve, some bacteria is going to pop back up from the large intestine and the FXR receptors are there to make natural antibiotics to kill that bacteria, but they require bile to be stimulated. So bile has that two roles to play. Um, the, actually the ileocecal valve, uh, also has to be maintained properly. So if you kind of, uh, feel the spot between the right front prominence of your hip and your belly button, and you halfway between them and kind of rub around in there, if you've got an area that's a little tender, that could be a problem with the ileocecal valve. Another protection is, uh, the immune system itself. The small intestines has an immune system, but you don't really want to rely on that solely. Cause if the, if the only, if, if that's the only protection you've got against small intestine bacterial overgrowth against SIBO, then the, the small intestine is going to become a battlefield. And that's not really what you want for your gut. And then the last one would be the, uh, what's called the giant migratory contractions, also known as the migrating motor complex. Now, peristalsis is the um, muscular contraction of the small and large intestine uh, and you know, the stomach itself also to move food down. But it turns out there's lots of different peristaltic actions. One is one where um, it squeezes forward like a few inches, but there's a, it doesn't completely occlude the, the intestine. It leaves a little hole. It doesn't completely kind of closes, but only most of the way. So when the food is going through it, some of it backwashes, and that's part of the natural mixing cycle. Another is when it kind of goes back and forth, and that's another mixing cycle. And then there's one, like I said, the migrating motor complex where it actually starts at the top and goes all the way down and just moves all the food in, into the large intestine. Uh, that's triggered by the hormone motilin and it lasts about 12 minutes and you should theoretically get one every two hours, but you don't get them if there's food in your stomach. If you don't get the migrating motor complex, then what happens is the food moves through, but it moves through very slowly. You have a slow transit time and now you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for SIBO because stuff's just going to build up in there and sit there longer than it should. 
Uh, one of the ways to get the migrating motor complex to get activated is to make sure you have 13 hours between, you know, when you have dinner, and when you have breakfast. So that gives you four hours in the stomach and that gives you um, seven hours in the small intestine and then two hours for the migrating motor complex to take place. If you have 13 hours between dinner and breakfast, you're guaranteed you are likely to get at least one migrating motor complex in the evening. And that housekeeping of your small intestine is really important to keep SIBO at bay. Now, uh, another issue is um, people spend a lot of time sitting. The only time you'll catch me sitting, I'm actually standing right now, is if uh, I'm eating dinner uh, or in a car. Other than that, I don't sit down because when you sit, uh, not only do you cramp up the blood to your pelvic region, so, so the sexual organs and ferment the prostate, one of the reasons I think men have so many prostate problems is they sit all the time. Um, but you're also cramping up the intestinal organs. So you want to be either squatting, which is that primitive squat, if you can learn how to do that, or standing uh, or reclining. And that will give your guts the, the space and the need to be able to properly move things around. And that, that's uh, a really, really good point. And another thing I wanted to mention is the migrating motor complex can be really negatively affected by stress from emotional trauma as well. Mm, yeah, um, sure. People can, um, you know, have, there's a lot of different issues around uh, emotional trauma and digestive issues and, and mm -hmm. SIBO. I talked a lot about that in my new course, the emotional detox program. Right. Um, but as far as like SIBO, you know, can you talk a little bit about testing for SIBO and how to go about uh, getting diagnosed with that or the test accurate? What, what's the deal there? Sure. So you know, the best test would be to uh, uh, pull some fluid out of the small intestine and analyze it, but that's very invasive. So their indirect tests would be things like a stool analysis where they check for the presence of some bacteria that typically tend to grow in the small intestine. The other thing you can do uh, is you can get a little device called the food marble air two, and that'll measure methane and hydrogen production in your breath, which would be produced by SIBO. And the last one is you can just ask yourself, do I feel bloated? right? After a meal, um, do I just, you know, feel like my stomach is, my abdomen is pushing out and do I get gas and it's just, just feel uncomfortable? You know, that's probably some degree of SIBO. Um, so I guess we could talk about gas production, right? Um, the main gases that are produced in the intestine are hydrogen, carbon dioxide, uh, hydrogen sulfide, and methane. So hydrogen is a normal uh, thing that a normal gas is produced by the gut. You wouldn't want to have no hydrogen production because it means you're not having any fermentation. But if you have excess hydrogen production, that can combine with carbon dioxide to form methane uh, and it can combine with sulfur to form hydrogen sulfide. So you don't want crazy amounts of hydrogen. You want the right amount. And again, that device, the test can tell you because a small amount of hydrogen, not only is it required to make things like uh, good short chain fatty acids like acetate, it's also an antioxidant when it crosses the gut membrane into the bloodstream. Now, like I said, you can make hydrogen sulfide. If you have excess hydrogen and some sulfur around and you have these certain bacteria like just sulfibrio and bilophilia, wadsworthia, and alstipes and Haliobacter, you can actually make hydrogen sulfide. So hydrogen sulfide is in small amounts needed. It protects the gut muca, mucosa, inhibits a phenotype drift of the good bacteria so they stay symbiotic and don't become parasitic. It inhibits translocation so they don't end up going into your internal organs. Um, it's a fuel source for mitochondria, participates in tissue healing, uh, stabilizes our uh, atherosclerotic plaque. Um, it's actually quite good for you in small amounts, but in large amounts, leaky gut, Parkinson's, and obviously terribly smelling gas because hydrogen sulfide smells like rotten eggs. 
So the idea is to have the right amount. If you're getting a lot of that, you could try doing uh, the herb dong shen, um, green tea, and the element molybdenum. Uh, and then you might want to lower your sulfur in your diet temporarily. Uh, you do need to take sulfur in some form, so you could uh, take Epsom salt baths as another way to get it in. Um, now, carbon dioxide is also normal in production, but if you have a lot of it, it can combine with hydrogen to make methane. Um, so uh, if methane is a problem, one of the first things you want to do is get off carbonated water or carbonated beverages, sodas and beers and stuff. So why is methane a problem? Okay, so there are these life forms. They call them archaea. They're basically bacteria by another name, um, like methanobrevibactysmethi. And what they do is they can turn hydrogen and carbon dioxide into methane. And methane um, wreaks havoc with the uh, peristalsis. It can cramps the muscles, it paralyzes the nerves. And methane toxicity is actually, um, I think it's a pretty common thing. It, it will, it's associated with memory loss, headaches, fatigue, blurred vision, rapid breathing, rapid heart rate, fainting, convulsions, and abnormal emotions. And I had a client that basically had every one of those things in a high methane level. And uh, she would just be breathing like a freight train every evening uh, when, when she was at night. And uh, that, that stopped when we got the methane down for her because she wasn't, you have to remember the lungs are a detox organ. So um, if your lungs, if you're breathing really quickly, you might be trying to dump some kind of toxic gas out of your body, in this case, methane. And that, that test will actually tell you that. So if you think you're dealing with, with methane production, then there's two goals, right? One is you want to back off the excessive hydrogen caused by fermentation because hydrogen and carbon dioxide are what make methane. And the other is you want to support the actogenic bacteria like Laudia hydro, hydrogenotrophica, which actually makes the acetic acid, the acetates. Um, and then of course, obviously you want to knock down the methanogenic um, archaea. Um, there's a product called uh, Atrantil, which is um, made up of, let's see, butcher's broom and quebracho. Um, and you can do that to knock down methane temporarily until you can uh, get it under control in other and that, ways. That's Dr. Ken Brown's Atrantil. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I like to mix that with uh, the zoibin we make because that has the, um, the bitters and the essential oils and the polyphenols and the tannins. Uh, so, which are the other aspects? for dealing, um, supporting the body and going after SIBO. Uh, we were able to, with the Zoibin and the Atrantil, we had a client who basically went from 9.8 on the, on the air breath tester and it's a logarithmic scale. So that was huge. Got her down, I think to two um, afterwards. So that was pretty huge. Awesome, awesome. And then what about, uh, you know, diets for SIBO? Like typically people recommend, you know, going on a FODMAPS diet. Can you explain what that is and if that's effective? Sure. So if you were to um, remove all the fermentative, fermentative elements from your diet, then there'd be nothing for the SIBO to eat. And to, but then you're going to end up having nothing for your large intestine microbiome to eat. So that's not a solution. I think a FODMAPS diet is a great idea temporarily. Um, so the, what I did with one client is we put her on a FODMAPS diet along with the Zoibin and the Atrantil. But we also gave her a uh, panaceum. I don't know if I show that to you. It's um, okay. So this is the product. It's got uh, eight different oligosaccharides in it, uh, recreating a primitive diet. So if you were the world's most successful hunter gatherer and every day you were able to get a wide variety of, you know, insects and honey from without getting stung and um, raw meat and vegetables and mushrooms and all these different food groups that have all these very specific sugars that feed the gut 
that's what that is approximating. But we couldn't give it to her orally because it would grow the SIBO. So I, we got it to her in a 35cc catheter tip syringe. She mixed it up a little bit of water, took it rectally. And now she's able to feed the large intestine, the prebiotic oligosaccharides, large intestine she needs without taking the FODMAPs or oligosaccharides that would, in the small intestine that would cause the small intestine to have problems. So that's the short-term solution. The long-term solution is I'm coming up with a version of that product that is an incredibly um, heavily compressed um, pill so that it survives all the way to the large intestine so that when it opens up, it opens up in the large intestine without opening up in the small intestine so I can give the person all the oligosaccharides I need without um, having to give it to them in a, in a rectal syringe. So that's the kind of long-term goal. But yes, if someone has SIBO, they absolutely uh, should consider a FODMAPs diet. And that doesn't mean that they have to knock out every FODMAP, right? You might, you might be fine with lactose, but not with, you know, um, fructans or vice versa. So you can do a little testing with the challenging yourself, different things and seeing how you test out. And then you can figure out which ones you need to back off. And then slowly you want to start working on the different things that will protect you against SIBO until you can work those back to a plant-based diet. Like there are people that will do a carnivore diet and, you know, my hat's off to them. They figured out how to feel better, better to have a limited healthy microbiome than an omnivore, um, plant, uh, pathologic microbiome. But the next step would be to have a healthy full on omnivore microbiome because I don't want these people who are doing meat only to find in 20 years, they become meat sensitive and now they can't eat anything. Uh, so I think of the carnivore diet as a transition diet, great temporarily, FODMAPs diet, great temporarily, let's work you towards repairing the small intestine so you can eat the full complement omnivore diet that it looks like we were designed to do. For sure. I mean, I do worry about people that are going on a carnivore diet, you know, and it's mm. certainly some people love it. You know, they, they, they love meat. It's very, that umami flavor and it tastes great and everything, but it, you can get too much of a good thing and your body can develop uh, an immune response a food sensitivity reaction to anything you're eating too much of. Yeah. And then umami is one of the, was one of the flavors that uh, accelerates par uh, parasites and cancer growth. Um, it also makes certain enzymes, uh, certain um, metabolites that are known to cause plaque in the arteries. So like I said, uh, carnivore diet's a fantastic transition diet for some people. The goal would be um, to avoid the problems with any extreme diet uh, and work your way back. So any other thoughts on SIBO? Uh, Cause it's certainly if anyone listening, if you have any kind of um, any digestive issues, gas, bloating, things like that after meals, I mean, gas is normal uh, after meals. If you're eating a diet rich in vegetables and have sulfur, you have beans and things like that, you're going to have gas. But if you have a lot of really uncomfortable bloating and, and whatnot, other digestive issues, you want to be looking to see rule out SIBO for sure. Right. I mean, a person should, will, will have gas, but the gas one shouldn't smell. Um, that's a sign of uh, putrefaction. And, you know, it, it, you know, yes, a person will normally pass uh, some flatulence during the day. Um, but if you're getting to the point where it's uncomfortable because you're bloating, then, then that's an issue. Um, so, you know, one of the things that happens when you've got SIBO is um, the gut leaks and you translocate bact uh, bacteria. Bacteria actually leaves the gut and goes can get in the joints, can get in the internal organs and cause inflammation. And one of the reasons it does that, because these bacteria, um, there's a compound uh, 
of um, gram-negative bacteria, part of its cell walls called LPS or lipopolysaccharide. And the body knows that lipopolysaccharides are part of this bacteria. So if it gets in the bloodstream, you know, it's all hands on deck, red alert, and all this inflammation um, because it thinks there's a bacterial infection that could kill it. It doesn't really figure, it doesn't really understand leaky gut because that wasn't something that, you know, it really thought we were going to have to deal with. So if you have um, leaky gut from SIBO and lipopolysaccharides get into the bloodstream, uh, you're going to have a lot of inflammation, a lot of pain. Um, so chronically, when that happens, uh, you'll end up with low glutathione, low cytochrome P450. Uh, it can induce autism. Um, it can mess around with nerves, blood sugar, hormones, kidneys, the mitochondria, the liver. Um, if you see alkaline stool, um, it could be from uh, that because lipopolysaccharides can interfere with ammonia detox and ammonia is highly alkaline. Uh, the first two things I mentioned, I think, were um, glutathione and, lipo and um, cytochrome P450. So we have this product over here, Xenoplex. And uh, it has organic coffee and glutathione in it uh, to support the body in getting rid of chemical, tox uh, chemical toxins. And it turns out that those are two of the very things that lipopolysaccharide will actually lower. So if someone has SIBO, they might see if that helps them out. You know, and then we could talk a little bit about um, cloaked infections. There are some infections that are able to hide and evade from our immune system. And they do a lot of sneaky things, right? Some infections from dysbiosis, they can cause the good bacteria in your gut to become pathologic. So they occupy and distract your immune system. Uh, they can suppress the immune system. But one of the, the tricks they do is they'll actually become invisible to the immune system. So uh, let's take cancer, for example. Cancer cells don't just look like human cells, like certain bacteria. They are human cells. So it's very difficult for the immune system to recognize them. The immune system has to be very finely tuned to recognize self from non-self and destroy them. And here's an example. Tumors secrete a cytokine called tumor growth factor, and that converts T regulatory cells to a form that ignores cancer. So they make the immune system ignore it, but they also downregulate MHC, uh, the major histocompatibility complex one, just enough. Now, if they were to downregulate it more, um, the natural killer cells could see the cancer. And if they don't downregulate it enough, the T cells can see the cancer. But there's this window where if they downregulate it just this right amount, it's like the chink in the armor, and then the immune system can't see the cancer. Uh, and now take a, think about Lyme disease. Lyme disease is another one of these cloaked microorganisms, right? They have thousands of um, protein coatings they can rotate through so that every time the immune system gets used to fighting it, boom, it changes, it changes its disguise. So... Uh, one of the key things here, the microbiome, the gut bacteria has the ability to decloak cloaked infections. And that's really important because, you know, it's so much harder to fight. It's almost impossible to fight an opponent you can't see. You have to see it to be able to fight it. So when your microbiome is running properly, it'll give the information to the immune system so that it can then recognize um, things like cancer and Lyme disease and other opportunistic infections that would otherwise hide. So I think that's a really important part. A lot of people want to stimulate their immune system, but it's not all about giving them, it's like, it's not all about giving your, 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 your army better guns. Sometimes you got to give them, you know, night vision. Sometimes you got to give them the ability to see that what they can't see. And then, then, then it's a game changer. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's so key because I think people don't realize how much cancer is a function of your, your gut bacteria, your gut health and your, your immune system health. If your immune system is totally overwhelmed dealing with different gut infections and opportunistic infections, 
you know, cancers just uh, can run amok. Cancer can grow uh, unabated. And so that's why a lot of people get cancer that have a lot of different infections. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about zonulin. Hmm. So what is zonulin and how do you lower it? So zonulin is the protein that controls how leaky membranes are, right? So we all know about leaky gut, but you can also have leaky mitochondria. You can have a leaky brain. Everything can leak. And everything needs to be able to leak because that's how it detoxes. So for instance, when a person eats something toxic, they get diarrhea to flush the food out. That's leaky gut in its proper form. Zonulin is released to bring water into the gut so you can flush out the toxin, right? And it's the same for the- You know what drives organ. me crazy is when people take Imodium or they take a, a, a supplement to try to stop the, the, the diarrhea. And it's like that's mm. the exact opposite. Your body is trying to get rid of the bacteria. You just end up prolonging the infection and the, the uncomfortableness. Right. But then what do you do with someone who's got, doesn't really, who's got so much zonulin that they're, they're going de getting dehydrated and, you know, at risk and you've got to keep the fluids in them. Right. So yes, I'm there, there's a, a medical application for that kind of stuff, but to use it, uh, as a, as a patch or bandaid over SIBO is the wrong way to go. You have to yeah. figure out what's actually causing the zonulin to get it to go down. So gluten, uh, gliadin will both raise the zonulin. So you want to be careful with that if you've got SIBO. So how would you, how would you lower SIBO? Um, uh, sorry, how would you lower zonulin? Okay. So there's a couple of, um, ways in which you can do it. Uh, gluten and saturated fats increase zonulin, right? So temporarily you want to kind of back off the animal fats and the breads and more towards the vegetable, uh, sorry, the uh, fish oils, uh, and then, you know, DHA and things like that. Elagitannins, I think you've seen our Elagica product. Elagitannins um, are really good at balancing the Firmicutes bacteroides ratio. There's, those are the two main bacteria in the gut, the Firmicutes and bacteroides. And when it gets out of whack, that zonulin goes up. So that can help balance that. Um, there's also a bacteria called Acromantia mucophilia, which is um, you can actually purchase uh, that helps maintain the gut mucosa, but, and that lowers zonulin. However, you don't necessarily have to purchase it if you've got it in your gut, you just need it to grow. So you can raise it, uh, Lagitannins and uh, the bacteria B. animalis. Uh, B. animalis will raise uh, Acromantia mucophilia a hundredfold. So that kind of shows you the uh, network effect of the symbiotic effect of the bacteria in the gut where, you know, you'll actually get more of the bacteria by supporting a different one than by raising the bacteria directly. It's because one bacteria creates a metabolite that feeds the next bacteria. You can give someone all the acromantia mucophilia you want. If you're not, if the bacteria that makes food for it isn't there, it's not going to stick around. And let's talk about candida. So this is something a lot of people, that's the first thing they think mm -hmm. of when they're having gut issues. And it's kind of the, the, they think of that when they're eating too much sugar or they get maybe vaginal yeast infection. So they, they start thinking maybe I've got systemic or gut candida issues. So why do so many people struggle with candida and, and how does candida fit in this, this conversation, the, the bigger gut picture that we're talking about here? Sure. So candida is an opportunistic infection. You're always going to be exposed to it. So one question is, what's the natural method by which the body deals with it? And that's caprolytic acid. Now that is naturally made by breaking down certain oils. Like if you eat olive oil, you make caprolytic acid if you've got a good digestion. But if you're not digesting fat properly, if you've got a lipase issue, right? Um, then what's going to happen is you're not going to get the caprolytic acid and you won't have the natural antibiotic fungal effect of that in your diet. 
So I'd rather get you digesting fat. You'll start making caprolinic acid and every meal will be anti-candida or every oil containing meal. Great. Fantastic. Yeah. And then, um, so anything else about candida, you know, how to bring levels down, um, how people can figure out if they have candida versus SIBO. Yeah. yeah, You can, yeah. I mean, you're probably going to have a person probably have both. If you look on your tongue and you see a white coating, that's typically considered candida. Um, you know, there's a theory that candida actually serves a purpose. It helps chelate out, out certain things. Um, candida is just yet another one of those um, opportunistic infections, right? If your body is busy fighting off all this different bacteria, it may not have the energy to fight off candida. Um, but uh, there's um, an ingredient in, allerg- in our Allergica product. Uh, the allergic acid has the chitin synthase 2 suppressant. So allogitanins will suppress chitin synthase 2. And chitin synthase 2 is the enzyme that allows candida to build its cell wall. So if you can keep it from growing, uh, and then eventually, you know, its life cycle is over. So you might consider some kind of allogitanins, either an allergic product or, you know, in a raspberry extract or something like that. Okay, great. And then let's talk a little bit about fecal transplants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're hearing so much about fecal transplants. I've heard about so many different podcasts, at least I have, maybe not the listeners, uh, but I've seen stuff in the newspapers and things like that. So do people really need fecal transplants and, and why do people want to do those in the first place? So it depends on how badly their gut microbiome was wiped out, right? If it's an average person that's taken one, you know, one or two antibiotics, you know, they might not need it. If it's someone who's taken Cipro, which will knock out over half of your gut microbiome and your appendix backup uh, for your microbiome, yeah. Um, if you are a premature delivery and in the hospital uh, for the first month, a week of your life and never got colostrum, never got, you know, and picked up, you know, hospital-based microorganisms for your gut, yeah, that's a good suggestion. Or if you're just the kind of person that says, hey, you know, how healthy can I be? Well, okay. Um, if you've ever taken antibiotics, then a fecal transplant, it could be something you could consider. And what you want to look for is, um, preferably someone your sex, but not, um, but if it, all right, pref- what you're looking for is someone between like four and eight years old, who's never been, never taken antibiotics and never been vaccinated. So you're going to have to tap into your hippie community and uh, find someone who's <laughs> like that. Right. Um, if it's going to be, if you're going to get a fecal transplant from someone who's past puberty, it should be the same sex as you because the bacteria are going to be set for breaking down the hormones of that, of that particular sex. Um, optimally, someone that's not traveled internationally. And what's really important is that they, the person who um, get, you get the transplant from, they have a good mood and they're in good health and they have good digestion, no allergies. You know, the healthier the person, the better. And what you do is you obviously... Um, Assuming that the, um, you know, if you don't know the person, you could get it tested, do a stool test, make sure they're not loaded with parasites. But if it's like a four-year-old that's never traveled anywhere, you know, I wouldn't personally be concerned with it. So you get some, you know, bright and cheerful four-year-old and you get a sample of the stool and time's of the essence because these are very sensitive once they're out of the gut. So you want to put it immediately into a Ziploc bag with a little bit of mild saline water uh, and get all the air out of the bag and then uh, shake it around a bit. So you get a brown slurry. You can filter it if you want to, but you don't have to. And then with a catheter tip syringe or with a retention enema, you take it back into the body rectally. And there's some people that think, um, if, you know, in the case of SIBO, you actually want to make pills out of it with uh, uh, enterocoded pills that survive stomach acid to get it into the small intestine. And it's very difficult to get these from a medical source 
because uh, right now the only approved indication that I'm aware of it, uh, for fecal transplants is a C. difficile infection. And I don't know if you can even get the pills that were freeze-dried for oral use. So you might have to make those yourself. And it's difficult because um, fecal matter is moist and you put it in a pill and it's going to make the pill break down. So sometimes you have to put it in a pill inside of a pill if you're going to try to get that bacteria into the small intestine. But remember, the small intestine doesn't really need to have that much bacteria. Uh, so uh, I would think that for most people, just a rectal infusion would be more than enough unless they've specifically got some kind of bacteria that's really tearing up the small intestine. Okay, fantastic. So I think that's very, very clear. And anything else with regards to uh, gut infections or any kind of other digestive issues that we haven't touched on? Well, you know, I think uh, it's not a bad idea to be taking hydrochloric acid if you need it. That's a simple test where you, you know, take a little um, baking, uh, baking soda, I think, and you see if you burp and how long it takes. You could look that test up. Um, but also, um, you know, by the time you're 30, you know, 35, maybe you start taking digestive enzymes because, you know, you want to, you want to be breaking down the food as much as possible in the small intestine for absorption. Um, things that aren't absorbed, they're going to get into the large intestine intact, and that's going to give you dysbiosis and putrefaction. Um, you know, what you can do is you could, if you think you've got SIBO, try a FODMAPS diet for like a week and just see if you feel better. It's, you know, it's not that hard. Well, fantastic. Well, you know, Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show and helping us kind of demystify some of these different gut infections and what to do about them and what's causing them. Because there's, you know, one of the number one issues that people have are digestive issues. And I think there's, you know, the, the typical, uh, you know, solution people their go-to is taking probiotics. Maybe that's, that's what they're supposed to do. And it's, you know, obviously much more complex than that. So thank you so much for shining mm -hmm. a light on these different digestive issues. And uh, for all the different solutions to some of these issues, go to Spencer's website, remedylink.com. You have an amazing line of supplements that uh, I highly, highly recommend. You've got lots of great detox supplements and now you have a whole line of digestive supplements as well. And you have people that you consult with people as well, correct? Sure, you know, if we have time, I'm happy to chat with people and see if we can put together a protocol for them. Okay, great. Well, Spencer, thanks so much for coming on the show. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in every week. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. Uh, you can check out my site at myersdetox.com. And it's such a pleasure every week to bring you experts around the planet to help you. I, I just really want to help you find that missing piece of the puzzle in your health issue and find many pieces of the puzzle uh, while listening to this show, because I know it's, it's very complex. There's, there's so many different things that can be affecting your health. So I hope today uh, helped you on your journey. So thanks for tuning in. I'll talk to you very soon. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.